We're in our last week of a little mini-series that we're doing. Uh, as we've turned 10 years old, we're now a church of uh, a church plant that's turned 10, and so in many uh, criteria, we wouldn't be considered a church plant anymore. Uh, if, you're not, if you've not been here for the whole 10 years, but you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, you're part of the testimony of what the Lord has done here among us, and, and so we have been celebrating that. And each week we've started, we've really just been building out this, this bigger perspective, this bigger strategy of who we are and how we're striving to get to be more like who we are. So I've been starting with some visional statements, and I hope that uh, you hear the repetition. I hope that in the repetition, they, it, it, it's imprinted more deeply upon you, uh, not because I think these are, I mean, it's not my words, right? It's a biblical perspective that's being presented. And so uh, I, I want you to learn them. And, and for those that haven't been here every week, you'll get to hear them, and it kind of sets the stage for for where we're at today and what we're doing uh, through this little mini-series. So here we go. Because of the gospel, we're no longer sinners but saints. We are no longer aliens but citizens of God's kingdom. We are no longer strangers, but we are sons and daughters of God Most High. We are children of the King because of his good news, because of his gospel that he provided to us through Jesus Christ. It has radically shaped us. It's radically re-identified us. We are not who we used to be. We are who we are as individuals because of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, he has made us new. Because of the gospel, we are who we are individually and we are who we are corporately. We are members of the Big C Church, the church that spans uh, generations and locations and it it, it spans people groups and and ethnicities. It's, it's, It's a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that exists and has existed, but that that will exist for eternity. This, this people who are given to God's worship forever and ever and ever from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. As, as we are members of that, that's a theoretical idea. Like It's, it's difficult for us to even comprehend and, and, and apply, I guess, if you will. It's, it's difficult for us to, to see that. So as important as being members of the Big C Church, it is important that we recognize we are who we are individually because of the gospel. We are who we are corporately because of the gospel. And that is expressed in and through the local church. We are physical people limited in time and place. Like we can't be more than one place at a time. We can't be uh, more than one time at a time, right? Like all those science fiction shows that are jumping all over the timeline. That's, that, that, that's not real. I, you get that, right? Like we're not God. Uh, we can't do that. So it's essential that our expression of being members of the church happens inside the local body of believers. And so that happens right here. And so we are together. We are a people of God because of the gospel. So because of the gospel, we are who we are. Because of the gospel, we do what we do. The gospel has given us a brand new purpose for living. The gospel has given us a new objective to shoot for. Like most people growing up in the United States have this idea of what they're going to grow up to be and why they're going to grow up to be it. In some older days, I don't know if it's still a common saying. I don't know if, because I don't, my kids are grown and so they're off doing their things, but I don't know if it's necessarily the, the growing up into the American dream. I don't know if that's really what you hear said, but at least our constitution says that we're, we have the right to pursue happiness, right? Like the Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, I think, is the way it says it. It's been a long time since I've read that, so uh, 
long time since I was in school and had to deal with those things. But, but that's the idea is that there's this objective that we give ourselves to. But because of the gospel, we have a, no, a, a noble and a perfect and a beautiful objective now given to us by God. Because of the gospel, that objective is to be a people of worship that leads other people to worship. It's, a, it's the purpose for which he's given us. He created us that we'd be a people of worship who would lead others through our worship to worship him. We're not talking about worship in the sense of just songs. That's not what we're speaking about. It's not that we didn't worship in singing, but our singing is not the only thing we do in worship. Our lives are given in worship to something, and God, through the gospel, has recreated us so that we can uh, live in awe and adoration and devotion and obedience to him as a form of worship that in all of life, We can give ourselves to his worship. And through that worship in all of life, it then spills out to lead others to worship. Part of that objective is to unite in this, to become one. This was Jesus' prayer for his people. Make them one, Father, as you and I are one, he prays in John 17. So we we have this objective to unite in this, to, to be one in this mission of worship as members of Christ's family. We, we have this objective to serve one another selflessly with God-given gifts and abilities to, uh, to, to his glory, for his fame, so that his worship in our lives of service leads those who we serve to worship, to, to see his glory. And we proclaim the gospel to advance his kingdom and multiply his worship. Our worship, our lives of worship start right here together. Right here, the very first people we lead to worship are each other. As we speak truth to one another in grace, it's, it's, as we give to each other, as we serve one another, it, it, it leads others in the body to worship him. But then we don't stop here. It, 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 the, the, the objective, the purpose for which God has for us is to move beyond us so that his worship is multiplied among us and so that his worship is multiplied beyond us. So we go proclaiming the gospel in order that people who don't know him today can come to know him and respond in worship to him. So that's the objective. Like, that's the big goal. That's the reason we do what we do. That's the, the, the objective we're shooting for. But how do we see it happen? Like, what are we doing to make it happen? Because I think we can all admit that we are not there yet. Every one of us struggle with these things. Every one of us have, have competing desires. Every one of us have, have uh, uh, competing priorities. It's always a struggle to prioritize him first and to not worship some other thing instead of the Lord. Well, how are we going to seek to make this happen? The gospel mission, the gospel objective, if you will, demands a gospel strategy, and he gave it to us. The Lord gave it to us. It's all through the scriptures that is then to multiply worship by making disciples. So you see multiply worship. Multiply worship in our own life. Multiply worship in the lives of others. We worship and lead others to worship. How are we going to see it happen? Make disciples, mature disciples, mobilize disciples. We make disciples. That's evangelization and assimilation. That's seeking to go out, preach the gospel. We've already talked about that. We go out and we seek to make new disciples. People who don't believe today, we go to them and we tell them the truth about Uh, their sin and God's grace, and we call them to believe. That's evangelization. That's a very basic definition of it, but that's what we do. 
But we also happen to live in a very Christian place. And so there's lots of Christians who live in Springfield who, one, aren't connected to a church, who can't express their identity as God's children, as God's people among the local body. And so they desperately need to be connected. So not only are we seeking to build entry points or on-ramps for those who aren't believers, we're seeking to build entry points and on-ramps for those who are believers. In addition to that, there's I do not want to speak ill of the body of Christ, but there's a lot of churches who preach consumer-driven uh, uh, messages that are more man-centered than God-centered. And we need to build entry points for people so that they can come and connect and hear and be, be grown in the gospel. So those entry points, those on-ramps, are, are, are the making of disciples. And, and the big idea of that message was this, to be Christian is to be sent by Jesus to make disciples that make disciples that multiply Jesus' worship. To be Christian is to be sent by Jesus. You don't separate those. It's the same thing. You can't be Christian. It is impossible to say, I'm Christian, but I'm not sent. Because Jesus didn't make that division. Jesus didn't make that separation. He made disciples, and he sent those same disciples. Right. So that's the idea. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end at the making of disciples, but moves then to the maturing of disciples made. And the big idea of last week's sermon, Jesus' mission for the church, doesn't end at making disciples, but prioritizes maturing every disciple made so his worship is multiplied in the church and through the church. Jesus' mission for the church doesn't end at making disciples, but prioritizes maturing every disciple made so his worship is multiplied in the church and through the church. As important as making disciples is, as important as it is to go out and preach the gospel so that new people can come into the faith, it is just as important to mature every disciple. This is not two different paths that one day you're going to seek to, to mature people. This is one path. We make a disciple and we, we, we become responsible to that disciple, to that new Christian. We become responsible to see them grow up in the faith. We, we, have, we, we walk through Ephesians 4. We have a responsibility to equip them for the work of the ministry so that we all grow up into the unity of the faith. Now, now, you can go back and listen to the sermon. In fact, I would encourage you to go back and listen to all the sermons in this series if you haven't been here, if you've missed one, so that you can see how this all breaks out. But, but we're talking about this, this maturing of disciples in the sense of equipping, which is perfecting, completing, helping you grow up. Not just you, uh, me. It matures me. I'm, I'm not a, I've not arrived. No, none of us have. We need to move in this process of sanctification. We are used of God in each other's lives to sanctify one another, to complete his work in each other. We equip one another so that we can then empower one another. Now, the idea of empowering is, is just simply like, hey, you don't have to come to ask me to, to serve somebody. You don't have to come to me to ask me, as the, one of the pastors in this church, to, to have uh, the... <laughs> Like, I feel like I'm supposed to be praying for people. You don't need my permission. Jesus gave you permission. He's given you the responsibility. He's given you the authority. He's given you the opportunity. You, you don't need my permission to, to uh, decide that I'm going to serve someone. I'm, you know, uh, so-and-so just had a really difficult time. Let me call one of the pastors and see if it's okay with them if I start bringing meals to them or organize meals for them. I, do it. 
You have permission. You have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do his work. You have been equipped by God's uh, people to do the work. So, so let me just get out of the way and let you do the work. This is not, a, it's not, it's not for the, 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 the um, elite or professional Christians to do the work of the ministry. The, the idea here is that we equip you. God is, is so desires to see his people mature that he's gifted certain people to do the maturing. And then he says, you mature them so that they can begin doing the work of the ministry. So you get out of the way and let them do the work of the ministry so that you don't become dependent upon me. You shouldn't be dependent upon me. In fact, if you become dependent upon me, at some point I'm going to let you down and you're going to wish that you hadn't been dependent upon me. But you become more and more dependent upon the Lord. He grows in you more and more. You deeper and deeper faith in him. And that worship is multiplied in your life. And then you get up and begin to enact his worship. That you begin to enact the service that, that you've received. You put it and direct it to other people. But this demands something. It demands that we don't just stop at the making and maturing. Because making and maturing is not a spectator Sport. It's not something that you're supposed to just sit back and let other people do, and hopefully you get matured along the way. See, it requires us to mobilize. It requires us to begin to move. It requires action on our part. It requires effort not just to be matured, but it requires effort to mature someone else. Like If you want to grow up in the faith, you actually got to get up and begin to do something. You've got to begin to exercise. Uh, you've got to begin to do some level of work to grow up in the faith. And others have to do work alongside you to see you grow. We have to begin to move. And this mobilization is the thing we're talking about today. It's the, the, the part of the process, the part of the strategy that we're focusing on today. To see worship multiplied, we must not only make and mature disciples... But we must mobilize to make immature disciples. We must get active. We must get busy about doing that very thing. We're going to be studying that from Acts chapter 13. Uh, I would encourage you to find to get, pull a Bible out in front of the, if you don't have a Bible with you, to pull one out of the chairs and, and get to Acts 13. We're actually going to be doing some flipping, and I want you to see the, how the Scripture unfolds because this is not my opinion, but it's a biblical process that I think is laid out in the book of Acts and, and really across the whole Scripture. And so I want you to be able to look at and follow along. So Acts chapter 13, we're going to start in verses 1 through 4. We're going to kind of summarize the whole thing here in just a minute, but, but I want you to be able to stay with me. So, so I'd encourage you to have a Bible open, Bible ready, so that you can flip along and see these verses for yourself. So beginning in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now remember, God, in our study last week, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he said that God had given, that Jesus had given the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers... And we see two of them represented here. He had given them to the church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. So we see two of them represented in the church at Antioch. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. 
Barnabas, he's the encourager. He's going to be called on to act in just a minute. Simeon, who was called Niger. Some people, not everyone, but some people think Simeon, who was called Niger, is the same guy who was called on uh, to carry Jesus' cross after Jesus uh, stumbled and fell in the street. And, And some people believe that this is the same man, that he later became a Christian. It's not necessary. I just want to give you some context. It may be, it may not be. So there's Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manane, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now Saul is eventually, in fact, in this chapter, his name, his name isn't changed, but they just begin calling him a different name. So, so like all my life, I had thought Paul was a name given to him by God, like kind of like Abram went from Abram to Abraham, and Simon went from Simon to Peter because God changed his name. But Truly, we, we don't see that happen. Actually, we just see that there's this, this dual name. Sometimes he's called Saul. Sometimes he's called Paul. And this happens in this chapter. We see that transition in the church as they, began, as they quit calling him Saul and began calling him Paul. So there's these prophets and teachers. These five men's names are called out. While they were worshiping, this is the whole church worshiping in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So that being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. And so here's what I, so, so the church is gathered. Right? There's this gathering of the church. They're there together worshiping. I can only imagine that they're singing psalms to one another, that one of these prophets and teachers, one of these men that are called out, at least somebody in the church is teaching and bringing God's word to them. He's not expounding necessarily on the scripture, although he might have been, but he was maybe prophesying and bringing truth to God, fresh truth from, uh, from God to his people so that they could learn, so that they could be taught. And then there, and in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, now just imagine if that happened in this moment. Like, what would you do? Now, we're, I don't know that this isn't natural to us. This is different for us because we don't expect that to happen sometimes. But what happens? The Holy Spirit shows up and says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul is the order that it's said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, I have a work for them to do. And so in the middle of their worship and in the middle of what's going on in their gathering, the Holy Spirit shows up, calls them out, and instead of just immediately send them, they pray and fast, seeking to ensure that they're understanding this correctly. The whole church, the gathered people of God. This gets me to the big idea. Jesus mobilizes his people with the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit to gather and to go. To multiply his worship among us and beyond us. Jesus mobilizes his people with with the authority and power of the Holy Spirit to gather and to go. To multiply his worship among us and beyond us. This is God's primary plan for his people or for his name to be made famous in the world. Where Jesus left off, he sent his people to continue on. It is through God's people that God intends to make his name known in the world. It is through his people that he expects and has planned that we would worship him and lead others to worship him. And that's exactly what is happening in front of us in this critical juncture in the life of the church at Antioch. The gathered people 
of God are critical to the process of going. They're critical to the mobilization of, of, his, of his mission. They, the gathered people are a critical piece of God's plan to make worship more or to multiply worship in the world. Through his Holy Spirit, empowering his people, God has determined to continue the, the, the mission that Jesus began. But here's the problem. Where we stand today, somehow, some way, along all through these years, a couple thousand years of church history has demonstrated that somewhere along the way we have lost sight of this. I'm not talking about just us. This has been a struggle throughout the history of the church. You can go back and you can follow this all over and over and over. The, the, the church loses sight of this. Now, it's working itself out, particularly in some ways in our culture today, in the American church. And rather than participate in the mission of multiplying God's worship, rather than coming together, rather than being a people of worship who unite in the mission of worship, who serve for the purpose of worship, and who then go proclaim the gospel to lead others to worship, rather than participate in that mission of God's worship, we have in large part, across the American church, have in large part become consumers of religious goods. Seeking to get just enough Jesus to make this life tolerable, comfortable. I don't want too much Jesus because that's going to demand something of me. But I just want just enough Jesus so that I can go live my life the way I feel comfortable living my life, give my life to the purposes I want to give my life to, do the things I think are important and define as good and right. And so we come to church like we go to Walmart. We shop at the big box store looking for those things that are going to make our life a little easier and more convenient. Rather than participate in the mission of multiplying God's worship, we have, across the American church, in large part, been deceived by false gospels that promote health and wealth and your best life now. If this is the best life we have there's not much to look forward to when Jesus comes back, is there? That's a false gospel. Rather than participate in the mission of multiplying God's worship in the world, by and large, we, the American church, have become consumed with self-promotion. So much so that we don't have room to promote him or his worship. But listen, Jesus didn't leave his church here to build a life that is comfortable as we wait on him. Jesus left his church here to be a mobilized mission force to continue his work. Jesus didn't leave us here to be stagnant. He left us to be working. He left us to be doing the work that he began. Jesus left us here that we would be mobile missionaries in the world in which we live. Yeah, we're missing it. This week I was preparing and I was like, I came across a documentary for a film called uh, American Gospel. It's a documentary. Um, and it seems, based on the, the trailer and what information I was able to find about it, it seems that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a documentary to, to present the answer to the question, what is the gospel? And then contrast the true and biblical picture of the gospel against all the junk that flies around in the world today that we live. This American gospel, uh, the, the American false gospels against the true 
gospel. And I was watching this trailer. Man, I, I'm, I'm, I'll just be honest. I was blown away. I mean, I know these things are true, but, but some of the clips that they used to present the problems that we face in the church and the truths, the truths that were presented that, oh, gosh, it just, man, I can't wait to see this. But it got me thinking. It got me wondering. I wonder. I wonder, as, as the church becomes familiar with this film and begins to see the trailer floating around, if we will be filling our Facebook feeds with how much we anticipate this movie in the same way we do for the last installment of a Marvel movie or for Star Wars. I've got an opinion, but I'll reserve my comment until I'm able to see. See, I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy the Star Wars and Marvel movies. I enjoy them. Well, I don't really enjoy Star Wars anymore. I think they ruined it, but that's another story for another day. But I just wonder, will the world ever get to see us treasuring the gospel of Jesus more than these movies produced by mankind? In the middle of this trailer, and I posted it to my wall. If you want to find it, go find me on Facebook. And I, Because I'm feeling convicted in this moment, not just this moment, but that moment. What is the world going to know about me? In the middle of this trailer that I posted on my Facebook feed, on my Facebook wall, is a, is a clip from a video that Penn Gillette put out, um, I don't know, several years ago, at least, I, I think it's like 10 years ago. I've seen it a number of times, heard people reference it a number of times. Maybe you've seen it and you're familiar with it. But in the video, it, it, the, the, the clip got me thinking about the broader video, and, and in the video, Penn is telling a story of after, after a performance one night, he walks, Penn Gillette is a professing atheist, right? So just to, to help you see this, he's a professing atheist, and he is Penn of Penn and Teller. His name is Pendulet. So anyway, so after one of his magic performances one night, he walks out and a man approaches him with a Bible. And he gives him a Bible, a, a little Gideon New Testament with the Psalms. And it, he was so struck by it, he was so impressed by it, that he put this video on YouTube just talking about how good he thought this man was. Now, this man's actions didn't change his mind. He Finish the video, he says, I'm still an atheist. I don't believe there's a God. Uh, so, so I'm not trying to present this as, as Penn's conversion moment. It didn't happen. And he's still a professing atheist. But in the midst of the encounter, he was struck by this. He was moved by it so much so that he goes home and he makes this video. And in the midst of the video, he says something that is challenging, well, convicting. And I, not to play, I'm not going to play the video. You can go find it. It's on YouTube. Uh, but he says this. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, but that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. 
And this is more important than that. And I'm struck in the middle of this clip thinking, how sad is this? That an atheist, a man who is dead, who has no spiritual life within him, seems to get it more than much of the church in America gets it. And he talks about how much we must hate them, but, but I don't even think we've got to go there because I don't think we're sitting around thinking, oh, I hate these people. But how little must we love the Lord to not follow him? How little must we think of others? How little must we love others if we wouldn't give our lives to the pursuit of making sure that they heard the truth? truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How sad it is that we love our own lives so much that we have ceased seeking to mobilize for the mission of Christ to worship and multiply His worship in the world. That we would fight for comfort and American dreams in the pursuit of happiness. Listen. As direct as I might be being right now, it's not my intent just to heap guilt upon you. It's not my intent to just belittle you and make you feel bad about what's going on in the world or even convict you myself. Listen, I want you to hear this as an opportunity. An opportunity that each of us have now to live in repentance and obedience Jesus has mobilized his people for his mission with the authority and power of the Holy Spirit so that we can gather and we can go to multiply his worship among us and beyond us. His mission, Jesus' mission of worship has always been mobile. It's never been stagnant. It's never set still. It's always been about moving in action and activity, being busy for the gospel. And this is demonstrated at least twice in this passage that we just read, verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 13. One of them is really clear. Do you see the mobilization that happens in 1 through through 4 of chapter 13? The Holy Spirit shows up and tells Saul and Barnabas to go. Don't stay here. Don't linger in the Christian neighborhood. Get up and go to this place that there's no Christians at. He sends them. So we can see Jesus' mission, even here, even now, in the midst of this church, is mobile. But there's a second way. It shows us that Jesus' mission is mobile. It's not quite as evident, not quite as clear, but it's there. That Luke can write these words is a miracle. And it's a demonstration of God's mobile mission. Now there were in the church at Antioch. Is Antioch, is it the ground zero of where Jesus did his work in ministry? Nope. Jesus never set foot in Antioch so far as we know. How in the world did a church get to be in Antioch? except that the gospel moved from Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, 
to the ends of the earth. In fact, let me just show this to you. Let me just show you the movement of the gospel and this mobilization of his people so that the gospel goes forward. Flip back just a couple chapters to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 20. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and where? Antioch. What were they doing? Speaking the word to no one except Jews, it says at first. But, a contrast, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now there's this persecution, there's this scattering, there's this movement, and when they go, they're going speaking the word, some of them simply to the Jews, but others inside this group of people preaching the Lord Jesus to Greeks as well. Again, flip back just a couple of more chapters. We hear of this, this persecution, this, this, this scattering taking place. It starts in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, you've heard his name once already. Saul was the guy who had, he was seeking in everything he did to, to end the church, to end the worship of Jesus, to end the proclamation of Jesus as the Savior. And when Stephen, this man who was a leader in the early church, is killed, Saul approved of his execution. That's what that verse is referring to. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And it seems in this passage that the apostles, the, tw- the, the eleven and, and, the, and the other one that was picked later, uh, Mattathias, that, that they are left in Jerusalem, but there's this scattering, this people going out, right? They're, they're leaving. They were scattered. And what did they do? They went about preaching the word. It wasn't the apostles' job simply to preach the word, although they had a responsibility to do that. Who was preaching the word? The people who would typically be sitting in the pews. Because it's not just for the elites and it's not just for the professionals. The preaching of the word belongs to the people of Jesus Christ. If you have been made alive by the spirit of Christ, you have been given the opportunity and the responsibility to preach the message of Christ. But it didn't even start. It it, it started even before Stephen was executed. The movement of the gospel began before even that. Flip back just a little further to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is standing on a mountain just outside of Jerusalem. He's standing on a mountain and his disciples are there and they're asking him, is this the time? Is is time come that you're going to establish the kingdom? And Jesus answers them in this way. You will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Before the church was even realized fully, before they even understood what was exactly happening, Jesus was laying out his plan for them to join him in his mission to bring the gospel to the world. It wasn't supposed to just stay in Jerusalem. Jesus had a plan to see it move. Acts 1-7 then tells us of them doing that in Jerusalem. They bring the gospel to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, we see persecution come. And instead of shutting the church down, it sends the church out. And they go about preaching the word. And people are believing and the church is growing and God's worship is multiplying. And now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're going about doing these things. To the point 
that someone moves from, uh, from Jerusalem, someone ends up out of Jerusalem into Antioch. There's a map here just to show it to you, just to see what happens. This doesn't happen overnight. It wasn't an instantaneous thing. Where's the map? It's not one to move. Sorry. There's this map that you can see there's distance. It takes time for movement to happen. Jerusalem, down in the bottom right corner, is at the south end of the kingdom of Israel. It takes time. They move from Judea to Samaria and then out of Judea and Samaria into Galilee and past that into Syria where they get to Antioch. And now there's a church there because the gospel was always intended to move. In the chapters 13, this critical juncture in the church is the moment where we begin to see the Holy Spirit moving them into the uttermost. Chapters 13 through 28 They're the gospel moving across the ends of the earth. And the reality is we're sitting here because the gospel didn't stop. It kept moving, not just across locations, not just across land masses, but across generations and, 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 and time. You and I are sitting here because the gospel continued to move in and among and through God's people. This has always been God's plan. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have the opportunity to be a people who pour our lives out for the gospel movement. In fact, we don't just have the opportunity as his people. We have the responsibility to get moving, to mobilize for the very purpose of making and maturing disciples so that God's worship is multiplied in the world. But it didn't just start on that mountain outside of Jerusalem as Jesus was ascending. Before Jesus ever told his followers to go, he was sent. He was the very first missionary on the field. You probably don't need your Bibles for this. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus was sent. And before he ever said, come and follow me, he'd already come to those he was calling. He set the example. But it doesn't even begin in that moment where he's born as a baby. In fact, really to see the beginning of this work, this this gospel mission, we have to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Where after, after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, after they had already sinned, after they had rejected his truth, after they had rejected him as their God, God meets them and is bringing and putting the curse on them and the serpent, And he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You know why spiritual warfare exists? It's not because the devil is so strong. Right? The devil didn't start the war. There's enmity between us and the devil. There's a spiritual warfare going on because God put enmity between you and the woman. God started the war. He determined that he wouldn't let his creation fall into sin irretrievably. He determined that he would pursue us in the depths and darkness of our sin. He determined to get active and begin to do something. So he makes a promise. 
He promises to do this. And I am going to put enmity between you and the woman. That's a promise. And between your offspring and her offspring, that's a promise. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He promises the very first promise that Jesus is coming to suffer under the sin and the, and the destruction that, that, that the serpent might be able to bring. Not the destruction, the, the, the suffering that the serpent might bring, but he is coming to crush the head of that serpent. He is coming to win the war. This is the very first promise in the scripture that shows us that God is the missionary God. That his plan is that we be mobile. That we get up and we begin to do something to make a mature disciple so that his worship is multiplied in the world. This is what he's commanded. Jesus didn't command people, come and follow me, come and find me. I hope you can figure out your way to me. He came to us and then he sent us to them. And he says, go to them so that they can hear the gospel. Go to them so that they, can, that they can believe in the gospel. And because of this, even under the threats of great persecution, uh, dealing with great suffering and trial and tribulation, many of them dying because of what they believe and because of what they preach. Even as a result of that, they are going about preaching the word of Christ. Preaching the gospel so that people can come to believe and give their lives in worship of God. And by that very worship of God in life, leading others to worship this great God. And this all happened to the point that a church that started in Jerusalem expands all the way to Antioch. And it continued so that even today, nearly 2,000 years later, we're sitting here gathering around this truth that God has mobilized his people that we might make and mature disciples so that his worship in the world will be multiplied. And just so you know, that's why we are part of an organization called Acts 29. There's not a chapter Acts 29 in the Bible. Acts ends at 28. But we are a part of this organization because we are a part of the story continuing. Because when we're dead and gone, our legacy not, not, not our legacy of being the smartest, brightest, prettiest, funniest. Our legacy of being a people of worship who lead others to worship can live on because the gospel will continue to move. And we have the opportunities, brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to be a part of that. To have our name remembered as a people who didn't sit down who didn't consume religious goods, but got up and went and made Jesus known. Together we see that there's two groups doing this. There's two groups functioning in this way. Because it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas that got up and went, because the work in Antioch didn't stop. Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, as, as he's called here, Saul and Barnabas go out of the church. They go to these places, but the church in Antioch continued to gather. They continued to worship. They continued to be a church in that city. They were missionaries right where they were. And while they're being missionaries, Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas are out preaching the gospel. In fact, all the way through chapter 13, you're seeing them preach the gospel. We don't have time to read it all. I just want to summarize it for you. They leave. They go to uh, uh, Seleucia. And from there, they go to Cyprus. And when they get to Cyprus, they're entreated by the proconsul there. And he says, I want to hear the word of God. 
And so Saul and Barnabas go to this proconsul. His name is Sergius Paulus. And, and, and Sergius Paulus wants to hear it. So they go to Sergius Paulus and they begin to preach. And what happens is there's a magician there. His name is Elamius. And Elamius is like, uh, or Elamus, I'm sorry. Elamus is like, oh, don't listen to them. You don't need to listen. That stuff's junk. You don't need to hear it. So they face opposition in the face of their preaching. And the Holy Spirit comes on Saul and says to, he says to Elamus, hey, because you're opposing the gospel, you're going to be blind. You're not going to see the light of day for a while. And in the midst of that powerful miracle, in the midst of that blinding, this man is blinded. The magician is blinded, but Sergius Paulus has given sight and he believes. And a man who didn't know Jesus, who wouldn't worship God, was made into a disciple that began to worship God. From there, they leave, and you pick it up in verse 45. I'm sorry, not verse 45, verse 13. They they leave there, and they go to Paphos, and then came to Perga, and into Pamphylia. John, that's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they were on their way to Perga, and came to Antioch in Pisidia. It's a different Antioch. So there's Antioch in Syria, and then over here, um, there's Antioch in Pisidia. And they get into Antioch in Pisidia, and they go into the synagogue, and they begin to preach the gospel. And they talk about the history of God working in and among the Jews because they're in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. And in the synagogue, they lay out the history of God's work in and among the Jews. And then they come to this place where they demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And if they would believe in, them, believe in him, they would have life. And the people are moved. I mean, they are so excited. They're so celebratory that they came to them and they're like, you need to come back next week and tell us some more. And so the very next Sabbath, you pick it up in verse 44, says the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Not just the Jews came to the synagogue, almost the whole city. This is Jews and Gentiles, everybody that's almost the whole city. I don't know how clearly to say it. It's pretty clear. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. You see, in some way, I think we think that this is supposed to be easy. Like, oh man, we got this pep talk at church today. Made me feel a little bad, then kind of lifted me up. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to move and I'm going to preach the gospel and it's going to be easy. No, in fact, the pattern is that you go out and preach the gospel, you face some opposition before you ever see any fruit. They began to revile him and persecute him. But the Spirit was on him. In fact, it says in verse 48, regardless of what the Jews began to do to, to revile Paul, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They began to worship. And, in verse 48, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Holy Spirit power appointing his people, bringing life to his people and his people believing. And the church, boom, there it is. Because the mobile movements of the gospel, because the mobilization of his people. The whole church, the whole church at the moment of the calling of Saul and Barnabas, at the moment that they're gathered in worship, becomes responsible. What are we going to do? The Holy Spirit has said to send them out. What are we going to do? So they fast and they pray and they seek the Lord's insight and guidance. Is this of you? 
Yes, it is. So Saul and Barnabas go. The critical, the gathered church is critical to be part of the going church or the going process. Will they obey or not? Will they love themselves and their comfortable life inside the church more than they love those out in the world that desperately need to hear the gospel? Will they love what they are able to consume under the teaching of men like Barnabas and and, and Paul? I mean, just imagine what the sermons were like then. I mean, sorry, you deal with me. I'm not either of them. But imagine what it was like to sit and listen to Paul speak. His words is powered by the Holy Spirit, just breaking us in two, but then building us up in grace. Barnabas, a man of encouragement that would make us, oh my gosh, not just build self-esteem, but encourage us with the truth of the gospel of who we are because of what God has done. Are they going to love that more than they're going to love Jesus and the mission he'd given them? Well, we know because we have the testament here of what happens. And the lesson we learn from that is that participants in Jesus' mission must be mobile. We must be mobile. We must be moving. We cannot participate in this mission if we don't get up and move. And we do that moving in two ways. We do that moving in gathering and in going. And just so you see how this works itself out, gathering and going as participants in Jesus' mission of worship is what it looks like to live every day in as an act of worship. These are both worship. And so structurally, this practically, we build those out here at this church, gathering in large group. We're here, gathered together for the glory of God and the preaching of his gospel. We gather together per, per, uh, primarily for worship, but we worship through the maturing of disciples. We gather to mature disciples who have been made so that his worship is multiplied. But we don't just gather in large group. We gather in large group and small group. It's a paradigm that was established in the early church. You see them at the temple gathering for worship and learning. And then you see them gathering in each other's homes. So we talk about it in terms of gathering at temple and gathering around the table. At the temple, we gather for large group, for a time of teaching, for for unity to be brought, for vision to be preached, for God's glory to be magnified among us. But then we gather around in small groups around each other's table so that we can build the fellowship, so that we can strengthen one another in life together, so that we can mature as disciples together as we pray for one another, as we lean into one another, as as we serve one another selflessly with the gifts that God has given us. But then we don't stop at the gathering, we go we got the temple and we got the table and then we've got the town to think of because, because here's the thing, if you think about this, is God doesn't demand just the hour and a half on Sunday morning and then maybe an hour during the week at the, at the community group, an hour or two at your community group. I mean, what happens to all the other hours in a week if all we've got is church on Sunday morning and, and community group on whatever night I go to community group? What if, what, 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 the rest of it's mine, I guess. I get to go do whatever I want. No! No! The rest of it's God's. And he says, in that time you go, you live in the world, and you make his presence known in the world. You go to make disciples who will be matured, to multiply worship. The beauty of it is that in this place, this is one of these places, this this time together is a time where we can come together and we can both seek to mature disciples and seek to make disciples because this is the place that people think church happens. This is the time of the week the church happens, and it is a time where we gather. 
so we can join together in this mission of multiplying God's worship as we both mature and make disciples, but it doesn't end here. You see, you're about to get up and go into a city that desperately needs you to go and preach and proclaim the word of the Lord. But we'll not be able to do it on our own. The most we can do is bear physical fruit. Physical gives birth to physical. We need something more. Mobilizing to make and mature disciples demands Holy Spirit authority and power in order to multiply worship. All the way through this passage, all the way through Acts chapter 13, actually all the way through the book of Acts, is the Holy Spirit that makes the efforts of the church fruitful. The Spirit is present in their worship gathering. The Spirit calls Barnabas and Saul, also known as Paul, to get up and go. The Spirit gave Paul power in Salamis that, brought the, the, that would blind the magician Elemas and convince the proconsul that the gospel was true and believable. The Spirit led Barnabas and Saul from place to place and brought spiritual and eternal fruit out of their physical efforts. Listen, Jesus mobilizes his people with the authority and power of the Holy Spirit to gather and to go to multiply his worship among us and beyond us. Will we prioritize this new gospel rhythm of gathering and going for worship and to multiply worship? Or will we be like those other Christians that that Penn Gillette notices Love Jesus too little. Love others too little. Just too busy doing their own thing. Living their own life. Loving themselves way too much. Today's an opportunity to answer the call of God to be a people who are mobilized for his mission to see worship multiplied. As a personal testimony, just real quickly. Years and years ago, I committed my life to get up and go and do the things that God has called me to do, to pour my life out to the, to the going and the making and the maturing of disciples. Now, I'm not about to stand in front of you and say that I've arrived at some level of perfection because if you spend much time around me, you can see the competing desires. You can see the priorities that I wrestle through. You can see the flesh at war against my spirit. But I am here to tell you that there's a spirit within me that lives and is growing stronger and stronger because his Holy Spirit is growing me and maturing me and making that my desire deeper and deeper. And so simply, I just want to ask would you come and go with me? Wherever the Lord would lead to do whatever the Lord would call us to do, we can be sure it's going to be proclaiming the gospel. We can be sure it's going to be enduring opposition. We can be sure that we're going to get to see him do work to make mature disciples. Would you come and go with me? Let's pray. Father, You are so good, so perfect and holy, so pure. Who are we that you'd be mindful of us? Who are we that you would make us 
into your children. Who are we that you would adopt us? Who are we that you would suffer in our place and on our behalf? And who are we that you'd bestow your grace upon us? But we are grateful for that grace. Grateful that your goodness doesn't burn us up, but instead benefits us. Grateful that your goodness doesn't push us away, but that you're, in your grace, you're, your goodness draws us in. So will you help us? Help us to be a people who have been made, to be a people who are maturing, and to get up and go in worship that we might make it mature more. And that your gospel power, your gospel truth, your gospel grace might be known through us. Would you do this work? Would you encourage those who together with me are already giving their lives to this? Encourage us that we might endure in the face of difficulty. And would you convict us where we need to be convicted? where we're going our own way and we're pursuing our own objectives and doing our own things, would you convict us that we might, by your grace, repent and follow Christ? Jesus, would you do this work through your spirit? I pray these things in your name. Amen.